Our text today is from John chapter 1, verse 19 through 28. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and he did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. And this took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. It's great to be here with you this Sunday. It's been a lot of preparation and planning and, and logistics to get here to this day. My family arrived about 10.30 in the evening last Saturday night. Uh, we spent the last week getting, trying to get settled, doing a lot of introductions, meeting a lot of new people. I was passing out some business cards and quickly ran out and realized I had packed in one of our boxes uh, all of my business cards. So I went through about 12 boxes to finally find uh, business cards to get back to uh, being able to introduce myself um, that way. Um, but we are incredibly grateful for how, how generous and how welcoming and how hospitable you all have been to us, uh, even just in this short time. Um, over the next four weeks, I thought what would be most helpful for us would be to look at the texts in the Gospel of John that have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we're starting a ministry together. I thought we might learn something from looking at the start of Jesus' ministry. Uh, but there's also another reason. The last time I was here, we looked at a, a darker moment in John the Baptist's life, and so now we've got to go back and, and celebrate a more positive moment in his ministry. Uh, but I'm excited about this because we're going to look at issues related to identity and who we are. We get to look at finding successors, finding new people to join us in our mission and our ministry and pointing others uh, towards leadership and service. We get to look at motivations. What are we seeking? What are we hoping for? And the last sermon of this series will be on hope and looking for greater things. This question today that the text poses twice is, who are you? And that might seem like a very simple question. We're used to that kind of question. It's only three words. But that's actually a really challenging question to truly answer. Now, in the midst of all of our introductions this last week, one of my fun games is to figure out, are you someone who roots for Michigan State, for Michigan? Or, or maybe like us and our family, is maybe you're just interested bystanders, bystanders just watching uh, the rivalry from afar. Now, you might be, appreciate something. I, I made a graphic that went in the bulletin, but it printed black and white, so you might not be able to tell from it. Uh, but if you're on Facebook, or maybe you see it in other media, you, you'd see this chair, and it's got a spotlight on the chair. 
And as I was working on putting the sermon titles on the graphic and putting a, a text, the sermon text on there, I realized that chair was navy and yellow. And, and I didn't want to put, a, put off our, our Michigan State fans and make you feel like I wasn't uh, on your side or, or one of you as well. And so through the magic of Photoshop, it now is an all blue chair. And uh, Jim noticed this morning though, he's like, you know, you wear, are wearing blue and yellow. Uh, and it's not navy and yellow, uh, but, but we might try to understand who someone is based on what color attire they're wearing. They're wearing their navy and yellow or their green and white. Maybe we have some ideas of who they are. But the text today is about some religious leaders who couldn't figure out who John the Baptist was. There was no easy you know, identifying marks of who he was. And so that's what they're trying to figure out. John the Baptist was leading a renewal movement. He's out in the wilderness. People are leaving the cities, leaving kind of the places of the religious establishment. And they're going out and they're, they're confessing that their lives aren't the way that they wanted them to be. And they're asking God's forgiveness. They're, they're asking um, for a new moment. And they're changing their lives. And so John's a part of this, this movement. And the higher-up figures back in Jerusalem aren't quite sure what to do with that. Who is this guy in the wilderness? He, you know, we have a whole sacrificial offering system. This is how you set yourself right with God. What on earth is he doing, doing with this baptismal ministry? So they send some other people out to go ask him some questions. So they go and they ask him twice in the text, who are you? And even if we don't voice that question explicitly as who are you, we're always curious about that. We interact with people and we're, we're wondering, can I trust you? Uh, do we have any shared interests? Do we support the same causes? We, ha we have a lot of identity questions that are really going on in the back of our minds. And I've been enjoying that process of being a parent for the last two years of each day, it's like you're learning something new about your child. And each day you're like, who are you? And you get surprised and uh, you can both play on some things you expect, but there's also those um, new moments and surprises to finding out who she is. And so that's the question, who are you? Now we answer that question, who are you, very differently based on who's asking. Over the last few months, uh, myself and the church's search committee have been asking each other, who are you? Trying to get to know each other, learn about each other. And for me, a lot of that had to do with talking about my childhood and, and how my upbringing affected who I am and, and how my theological development has been shaped over the years. But a few days ago, Beth and I went to the SOS to get our driver's license and registration, all of that good stuff. And they want to know who we are, but those questions look very different. And so they're asking things like, what's your mother's maiden name? Uh, what county were you born in? Which we both had no idea. They had to go to a new question. Uh, only lived where I was born for about a year of my life, so I had no idea about the county. Um, but, but everyone has different kinds of reasons and motivations for trying to find out who you are. And so sometimes that's positive. Like in those cases, there's good reasons for trying to figure out who each other are. But not all investigators have pure motives. 
And it's worth noting that the religious officials in our text today didn't find themselves in the wilderness because they wanted to start a relationship with John the Baptist. They didn't want to uh, get to know him where they could just be friends or, or minister with him. They wanted to know him because they wanted to categorize him and label who he was. They want to put him in a box. Naming something is an act of power. Whenever we label or categorize something, we are exerting control over it. We're conceptually lumping it together with other things that we think fit in that same space. So, uh, naming being powerful, uh, the great biblical image of this is in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis, it's, it's imagining humanity's origins, and God is, is showing that God gives control and some power over to humanity through the human being able to name the animals. So the animals come through, and instead of God exerting the control and always having to be the one in power, God allows the human, call it whatever you want. Now we should note that there are some patriarchal power dynamics also going on in the text in which the man gets to name the woman in the story. Um, but this is something that the text does, is naming has power and it gives authority. The powerful impact of naming happens every day, but we don't always notice it. Is somebody a migrant worker, an undocumented immigrant, or an illegal alien? The way you frame somebody already sets up the way that you are going to react and the way that you think about something. So naming has power. The religious leaders in John 1 are trying to determine who John is so they can know what to do with him and how he fits their established system. They don't like that their status quo is being disrupted, and they're looking for a way to figure out how John can fit into their system. Now, before we do what our brains want to do and distance ourselves from the religious leaders, because that's always what we want to do, when we, we figure out who we think is the positive ones in the text, and we're attracted to that, um, but it's helpful to also sit with the other person in the story. And so, what would it be like to think about ourselves from their point of view? There may be a temptation in the upcoming weeks um, that, that you might want to get to know me, or my wife, or my daughter, um, to not just to know me, to relate to me, but because you want to figure out where we fit into ongoing conversations about the direction of the church, or uh, decisions that we have to make, and those kinds of things. Uh, that who are you might be born out of uh, an interest in, in that direction of the church. And so, you know, I'd encourage you and I, I implore you to, to just try to get to know us, just to sit with us, just to learn who we are, not to try to assume motivations or, you know, our desires without actually just interacting and getting to know us. And I think one of the most helpful things to do in that would be to just pray for our family. Um, spend some time we got a lot of transitions going on. Uh, we have a lot of different fronts that we could use your prayer, uh, but I'd ask that you'd pray for us. I want to also note that I might also be tempted to make assumptions and that I'm in the process of getting to know each of you, and I want to learn your stories. I want to hear what motivates you. I don't want to just kind of try to jump to an assumption of you know, who's more or less flexible or more or less... Uh, interested in, in changes that could be needed to reach our community. Um, we all have to be careful about our motivations when we try to learn who each other are.
there might be a temptation for us as a church to assume we know the diversity of people who call Jackson home. We could be tempted maybe to only want to, to figure out who would fit in here. We're looking for certain cues and keys that say, oh, you're one of us, and maybe disregarding and not paying attention uh, to someone's full story. Can we just release that control over and just hear who they are on their own terms? Now, John's answer to the question of who are you is instructive. Instead of answering positively about who he is, John responds by saying who he is not. By doing so, John kind of follows in the line of, of uh, great theologians that would kind of trace back to God in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we have Moses out in another wilderness scene, and he comes across this weird burning bush. He doesn't know what to do with this burning bush. Then he hears a voice, and in the story, he, this voice says, you should go to the most powerful nation in your area, go to Egypt, tell them to give up their slaves, the Hebrew people. And that doesn't sound like that's a great mission. That sounds a little scary. He wants help and things like that. But one of the things that Moses does is he says, who are you? Who do I tell them sent me to do this? And God doesn't give him a simple answer. He doesn't give him a single label, a single name. He says, I am who I am. Another way of translating that phrasing is, I will be who I will be. God defies easy categorization and labels and is always more expansive and bigger than we expect. So while the religious leaders try to put John in a box, John tells them repeatedly what he is not. I'm not the Messiah. No, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. And that's a little bit frustrating to the religious leaders who just want to figure him out. So they're not satisfied with his answers and they're like, Come on, man. i got to tell my boss something. Just give me an answer. That reminds me of uh, when uh, Beth was in the hospital in labor with, with our daughter. Uh, they were asking her when her water broke, and she didn't know. And they are like, I just need to write something down. And they're like, just give me a time. They didn't care at all whether it was accurate. I just got to put something down. Um, so that's how they're thinking. They're like, I can't go back without an answer. Please just give me an answer. And so the way the text phrases this is, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sin us. What do you say about yourself? So, who are we? What do we say about ourselves? Maybe you've described yourself in ways that are less than who you actually are, in ways that are less than who God has created you to be. For most of us, we are our own worst critics. We're unwilling to give ourselves the everyday grace that we give to so many others that we encounter when we make mistakes. When's the last time that you were too hard on yourself? When you knocked that glass off the counter? Oh, I'm such a klutz. When you uh, made a mistake at work and you said, I'm a failure. When you forgot a friend's birthday and you said, I just can't remember anything. And we so quickly go to those hyperbolic statements that, that dismiss the image of God that's in us and that cut us down more than anyone else would, would usually on the outside cut us down. And so we need to remember that when we make identity claims for ourselves, when we say things like, I'm a failure, 
our identity claims aren't facts. We think about them like they're facts, but they're just thoughts. We need to evaluate whether the things that we've said about who we are are in fact true, or if they have been something less than what is true. Uh, there's a psychologist called, um, named Carol Dweck who talks about two kinds of mindsets. One is called a fixed mindset, and the other is a growth mindset. And how this plays out is a fixed mindset assumes that things like your intelligence, your character, your creativity, things like that, are static. You've got one level of this. You were born with it. You inherit it. And so I'm a musician or I'm not a musician. I can draw or I can't draw. I'm smart or I'm not smart. Uh, so it's very static and it doesn't change. And what happens is, is that success is just an affirmation of your, of your identity claim. You know, if I make a lot of money, it's because I was born very skilled and this is just the right kind of affirmation of who I am. And challenges and obstacles become a real problem because every obstacle that comes your way is a challenge to this identity that you've said for yourself. So if you draw a really bad picture, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not an artist. Uh, everything is just black and white um, ways of thinking. And so uh, the other kind of mindset, though, is a growth mindset. It thinks that, that maybe our character, our intelligence, our creativity are things that we can cultivate over time, that we can learn things, that we can uh, practice, that we can uh, give efforts, and that we can actually grow and adapt and change. And in this kind of mindset, when an obstacle comes our way, we don't get scared that we're going to be caught and found out that we're not who we want to be, but we take those as growing moments of, I can learn from this. I can, I can change. I can be better. And when someone else gets successful, I don't get jealous or think that that's cut me down. But I ask, well, how did you do that? How can I learn from you? How can I, can I learn from this experience together? And so, as your pastor, I'm not worried about whether you think you are something. I'm hopeful that you can be something, that you can grow into something. Wherever you think you are right now, that's not who we have to be tomorrow. If we believe that God is continually creating, continually growing, continually moving us, then we have something ahead of us that's even greater. God is, is growing us. And that's true even if you're hitting, uh, getting close to that century mark and age. God still has something new God can do in you. Maybe you've told yourself that you aren't good at praying in front of people. What if you told yourself instead that, that you're not good at praying in front, of, in front of people as much as you could be? What if you gave yourself the opportunity to pray in groups and instead of being afraid of people finding out that, oh no, maybe I can't pray like I should, what if you took each of those opportunities as moments to get better at your spiritual prayer life in a community setting? Instead of thinking, I can't be this, I'm not this, what can we be? What, what could God move us into? What could God transform in us? What identity claims have we made as a church that are less than what we can be? When a new opportunity comes along, will we dismiss it and say, well, that's not something we can do? 
Is it something that we can learn to do, though? Is it, it's okay to fail along the way to growth. It's okay if we can't do something perfectly today, but what if we could do it tomorrow? Do you think that this is a place that visitors would like to be? Or do you just assume that they wouldn't like to be here? What sort of labels and mindsets have we lived with uh, that we could expand? How can God cultivate and move in us to see something even greater tomorrow? What about claims that we make about our own community? Oh, you know, young people, they don't go to church. Um, What if we morph that into young people don't usually go to church without being invited? They're not just going to show up here. What if we we thought about what kinds of things would young people want to go to? Maybe they'd love to go to the personal care ministry, or they'd love to go help feed somebody, or like, what is the thing that they might want to connect with us? We need to be careful of making identity claims that sell us short, but also be careful about selling others short. We, we should see ourselves as open to new possibilities because God will be who God will be. God is a God of possibilities. So, John, we need an answer. Who are you? Now, John draws from Scripture. He, he draws from the great tradition and from the prophet Isaiah, and he describes himself through actions. John says he's the voice crying out in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a fitting place for him to proclaim God's message. He likely wouldn't have been sanctioned to do this this baptismal ministry in Jerusalem. He had to go out to the wilderness to be the voice. Sometimes we've forced out people who are living out their calling in our church and we've pushed them into the wilderness. We have to repent of not being a place that can cultivate and allow for people to grow into the ministries that God has called them to. We can't just be a place that tries to cultivate that inside our walls, though. We have to go out into the wilderness. John went out into the wilderness. we got to find those places that are desolate and speak life and inspiration into those dark places. What wilderness beyond our church walls is God calling you to serve and to bring life to? We all have our own ministries that happen outside these walls, but but sometimes we're not as intentional about what those are. Where are those wilderness opportunities in Jackson? John describes his message as making straight the way of the Lord. And I hope that we as a church can do our best to get out of the way of, of our members' gifts and talents that we don't provide too many processes that get in the way of of meeting needs as we see them and as they occur. Let's do our best to make straight the way of the Lord in our church. When we do get stuck in unhealthy identity questions and trying to to control people, or or even just in never-ending identity pursuits without action, we might miss out on what God is doing in our midst. While the religious leaders were trying to fulfill their duty of providing a label for John, they were unable to see how God was presently in their midst. Here's what the text says. John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know. The one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. The danger of getting stuck in debates over categorization and labels is that we lose track of the people in our midst and the image of God in those people. 
What I hope we can contemplate this morning is that we serve a God who's open to possibilities. A God who defies labels. And as such, we too should defy labels. We should go beyond those boundaries. We should be surprising and unexpected. We are all the more adaptable and teachable than we expect. Would you take on a growth mindset today? Could you just identify one thing, one thing that you want to grow in that has some sort of spiritual significance for you? And just practice. Give it a try. Commit to it. It's okay if it doesn't go well the first time. Uh, We're in this process and this journey together. Striving for a healthy identity is not always an easy path. I want to close from a few lines from one of my favorite musicals, Les Mis. I'm not going to try the French Les Miserables. Uh, It's always challenging trying to say Les Mis' full title. The journey of, um, of that play is Jean Valjean. He starts as this prisoner who's been in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread for his family. And he's struggling with identity challenges throughout the whole play. So he thinks he's getting out of jail and he's a free man. And the inspector tells him, no, you're always a criminal. You will always be known by your, your criminal number. And so he's struggling with who he is. And he accepts what society tells him who he is. He decides, okay, well, I'm going to have to steal to get by because I have no other option. And so his life is changed when he encounters a bishop. And he tries to steal from this church. And when he gets caught, the bishop says, you left so early. I had even more to give you. And so he he refuses to allow Jean Valjean to see himself as having stolen from him, but opens up everything to him. And he tells him, you know, I've, I've shown you God. I've, I've shown that you could be a child of God. Do something with this fortune. Do something with these possessions uh, for good. And so that's what he does. He goes out on his life. He's living this new identity. He gives himself this new name because he can't use his old name that the police are tied to. And that all works fine until he finds out that someone's been arrested and they think that that man is him. And so he's struggling. Do I go turn myself in and spare this man from judgment, or do I keep living this life that's doing good for others? And so the song he sings as he bursts into the courtroom ends with, Must I lie? How can I ever face my fellow men? How can I ever face myself again? My soul belongs to God. I know I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to journey on. Who am I? Who am I? Jean Valjean. Friends, living out our identity in Christ may be challenging at times. There may be consequences. There may be uh, tough days. But to deny who we can be is to deny the God who is shaping us into what we will be. Let's embrace our identities together. Amen.